What's good, devs? John Diaz here. Summer break is here. I hope everyone is taking time, resetting, getting back to center, taking your butts outside safely, getting vitamin D, getting into the water, whatever it is, man, but getting away from these screens. I got to be mindful of my down under listeners and repeat this message when it's our winter and be mindful of their summer. Big shout out to the home team at Epic for being the first studio that I work for that has built in two week long company shutdowns, one during the summer and one during the winter. More and more, I see people who don't take time off and this way it forces everyone to disconnect at the same time and not experience that FOMO or mountain of mails and Slack messages when you get back to work. That and, you know, the fact that we work on a live game that never ends, as well as the technology that's always running, you know, really helps. And uh, for me, it lined up perfectly for this major milestone in my life. To those that follow me on Twitter or the show on Twitter, you'll know that I am a dad. First time my baby boy was born this past Monday, July the 18th, where this episode should have originally aired. Uh, I decided to keep my boy's birthday special and delay this episode by one week. So here it is, one week later than promised. It was damn hard to make the time, but nevertheless, here it is. Sleep deprivation is a new thing for me. You know, operating on like two or three hours of, of sleep is, is definitely something something I'm not even sure about. And, and I even wonder how I can maintain my physical regimen, like, you know, working out. I feel like I'm more injury prone on sleep deprivation. So any tips, let me know. Additionally, with any tips on being a father, let me know. I got my stroller, bassinet, car seat, onesies, backpack carrier. Any of the recommendations on must use diapers, formulas, anything like that. Let me have them as a first time parent. I welcome all the insight I can get. And so with that, let's get it. On episode 37 of the Game Devs podcast, I sit down with an old Midway buddy, Chris Cole, who is a senior technical artist over at Amazon Game Studios working on New World. Prior to that, he's worked at Sovios on Puzzle Bobble VR and World of Warcraft at Blizzard. And before that, he was at First Playable by Carrie's Visions and, of course, shipped Black Side Area 51 back at the old Midway Austin studio. We explore how neurodivergence can be a superpower how he approaches managing and leading, the pros of pay transparency, what a pipeline tech artist does, and what it means to be a disruptive thinker and how we can always benefit from more of them. This conversation was previously recorded on May the 18th. Please welcome, by way of Texas, coming to us from Vancouver, Washington in the Pacific Northwest, Chris Cole. Let's fall the fuck out. Bienvenido. Bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I haven't found this outside of Washington. I saw it in the freaking Fred Myers down here, and I was like, yeah, that's a good, I just got a new job and I'm doing a podcast bourbon that's what i like to hear chris <laughs> that is what we are about here we're about drinking some drink talking stories celebrating life and achievements and it's pretty cool because when we first spoke you were doing your tech art thing over at servios yeah 
their VR first shop. Are you still at Servio? So you gave you your notice? That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, friend. Tell me. Oh, I was also interviewing at Striking Distance. Which one's Striking Distance? They're working on Calypso Protocol. Is that the old Dead Space people? Yeah, that's the Dead Space people. Like nearby, right? Like Oregon? No, I don't actually know. It was going to be remote. So I kind of, at a okay. certain point, I kind of stopped caring. It's all the same. Uh, I was like, as long as I got insurance and remote work and a cool project, I'm good to go. Cause and on Unreal, maybe? You, yeah, Eclipse of Protocol was Unreal. So while I was at Servios, that project was not going well at all. Damn. And I, I've been telling them like things I need to do for like a year beforehand, right? Yeah. I'm like, here's the people we need to hire. If we're going to make what you want to make by the date, you're going to make it. And I'm like, Hey, at the salaries we're paying, I'm not going to be able to hire people and kept not being able to hire people. You had the head count. You just weren't able to make like competitive offers for the talent you needed. Yeah. And it was things like, I'm like, Hey, we don't have a rigging system and I need to hire a rigging developer. And they're like, well, we can't afford one. So what if we just hire a mid-level rigger? I'm like, well, what's he going to rig in? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And they sort of gave me a couple pay bumps, I think, to sort of keep me around. And then I asked if my employees had gotten a pay bump. And none of my employees told me they had. These are your reports. Yeah. I had six direct reports. I think one of the people with the most reports at the studio at that point. Six, huh? Six is a manageable number, comparatively. More than that is problematic if you're going to be doing a good job as a manager. For sure. For sure. I think that's the limit. That is the limit, you know. Yeah. And as a, as a brand new manager. Oh, God. As a brand new manager. You figure... You know, if you're going to do, at best, weekly one-on-ones, you know, where everybody gets their day. I went to bi-weekly one-on-ones. Sure. That's still that's still good. It was hard to fit into the calendar. And then I said, hey, if you need something, I'm trying to leave room in my calendar so impromptu one-on-ones or conversations can happen as needed. And then one-on-ones with the other leads and art leads. I mean, I was having 30 hours of meetings a week sometimes. Or rather to say, I would have maybe three unscheduled hours a week. Uh -huh. I could do stuff, maybe. And I was still our primary pipeline tech artist as the lead too. So meaning that you had significant hands-on contributions you were responsible for. Significant IC work to do, yeah. Jeez. It was fucking gnarly. Servios is small as I understand it. Yeah, they're like, you know, around 100-ish people on the team that was on. All right, that's fair size. That's medium shop size. You can build the whole project. The studio was in that transition from like startup to wanting to become a bigger studio. Uh-huh. And I was like, hey, yeah, I can help and assist in that. And uh, yeah, man, they brought on a good person for that. That's what brought you up to the Pacific Northwest. They hired me, but then they didn't want to like listen to me or trust me. That's the tough part, right? And there are a bunch of other leads that felt the same way. There was some communication breakdown with the director to C-level employees. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there dealing with all this frustration and shit. And I'm like, hey, trying to talk about comp and long-term strategy. And hey, our production schedule isn't going to make any sense. Like we're not going to hit our goals. We're not going to hit our milestones. Things were just not going well. They're not communicating well. They extended our timeline, but like I was our tools team lead, mm -hmm. the tech art discipline lead and the rigging lead. I was doing like three lead jobs while also writing code and managing Perforce and much other shit. And nobody asked me a single question about like how much time do your teams need to be able to like hit the work they'd committed to. You figure that you're the point of contact for scheduling for your entire team, right? So you expect some producer or some director to hit you up. And I was working with a producer and nobody asked my producer either. <laughs> I was like, okay, so my team is making the level design tool set. The tool set level design and environment art are going to use to build out all of our levels. And nobody asked me how long my team needs to be able to deliver that for our milestone. They're like, oh, we'll just not include that in the milestone. We'll just not include that in our vertical slice. 
we won't test out our pipeline that we're going to use to build all of the levels during vertical slice. That does not make any sense, Chris Cole. You and I have been making games for over <laughs> almost damn near 20 years. Dude, and they made that decision without talking to me, the lead of the team building the tools. And it was like, this had been happening. And I was like, it was a whole thing. Like our tech director left and he was the one that was overseeing the people building that tool set. And I'm like, well, nobody else is going to take up this mantle. So I'm like, all right, I'll take up the mantle. And I'll form a, a cross-discipline tools team of tech art, tech design, and, you know, tools engineers. All right, what are we delivering for vertical slice? Where are we going? What are people going to depend on? All right, let's figure out what we can deliver, what we can promise, figure out a strategy and a plan for hitting our internal milestones and drive towards that. Mm -hmm. Nobody had been doing that. Got a backlog built, got a fucking bug list built, prioritized, got people working on delivering and fixing high priority bugs to deliver features for people for a level design and art to finally start using. Mm -hmm. It was those kind of things where like they used it for two days and they're like, yeah, we can't use this. We don't have all of the Lego pieces yet. It wasn't even that the tool didn't work. Yeah. It's that environment art hadn't built the pieces for it to put together. Right. They're like, oh. So it sounded like you were ahead of the curve there. Like you had the tools ready, but you didn't have the. I was rapidly trying to catch back up to the curve because, you know, tools people had to deliver before everybody else. Yeah. They had been planning on like the tools hitting an alpha state at the same time that the levels are going to hit alpha state. And I'm like, you can't do that. Your tools need to be a, a milestone ahead. Yeah. And, and the best, in the best scenarios. I'm like, well, we could do this. It's like, all right. It's, but it's like we weren't getting any support. And they're like, all right, well, we'll just have them continue to work on it, but without environment art support and without level design support and without bandwidth for those people to use it, test it, or give feedback on it. And we're talking about a game with a, at this point now has one year left to hit ship date, right? So they should be in beta stage. They were planning a year and a half for full production, like for pre-production, vertical slice. We're looking at like six months of production and then six months of combined alpha plus beta. And then fucking lady sent me a message from Amazon that was like, hey, here's these ridiculous fucking salaries for a rigger. I'm like, I'm not a rigger. I manage riggers. <laughs> it's on your resume. Well, there's like, you know, long ago, I'm not really a rigger, but I played one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to do it. You know, I've done it under certain circumstances. You know, I've done a little rigging. I've rigged characters. I've rigged you physics setups, but like. That's not what you want me doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not the best use of your superpowers. It's the best use of my time. Like, John, you can prop, you can go place boxes, right? You've done that before. Is that how low-level rigging is? Like, in the stack of TA thing? No, not quite, right? But, you know, I'm too ignorant to make a good analogy, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> a, good, a good tech design analogy. Come on. Uh, and so I'm like, well, I'll have a conversation. And then it went well. And I interviewed with this at the San Diego studio that started up with Smedley. Smed, yeah. And then the lead tech artist for New World was in that interview helping a tech artist from that team screen because they didn't have a lot of people down there. So he interviewed you as a tech art voice being like, okay, I know the thing. I'm going to drill him on tech art yeah. for this team. And they're like, oh, shit, we need him on New World up there in uh... They're in Irvine. Okay. Okay. Irvine. Yeah. That's like the main hub. They're like the old Double Helix studio, I think. Apparently there's a Unreal project starting up there. And like my preference was the Smedley team. They're going to be using Unreal. I think they're using Unreal 5. Yeah, it makes sense. Big I'm like, oh stuff. man, I was excited about that. And I was like, I wasn't super excited about Lumberyard, but you know. <laughs> O3DE. But I'm told that there's some cool stuff over there that they actually invest in their people over there. And my wife was like, the stability of Amazon is nice. So are you about to tell me you took an Amazon job? Yeah. Accepted, signed, sealed, and delivered? It better be. Like, they got a laptop that's coming tomorrow. Hey, okay. 
ahead of schedule. How would you like the interview process at Amazon compared to other game studios, right? Because Amazon's not really a game studio, at least how they interview. They have this very, like, rigid format. Mm -hmm. Scripted. Like, no the leadership principles. It's all right. I over-prepared for it a little bit. That's not a bad thing. I had to end up doing a one-hour portfolio review. I'm like, man, oh. I'm a pipeline guy. I did a nine-to-five interview on my birthday. That's how much I cared about the, the schedule over at Servios was I'd already scheduled to take my birthday off. And Amazon wanted to do an interview. So I was like, I'd strongly prefer to do it on Monday, April 18th, because I already have that day off to not impact the schedule at Servios anymore. That was already tight. I did that. Then the next week, it was just like work went to hell even worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was like, mm. and then Striking Distance contacted me and was like, guys, you're going to have to be fast. I just had my final interview with Amazon and it went well. So they got me in a call with their tech art director on Friday and he really liked me. He's like, all right. I'm like, dude, if you want to move on this, you're probably gonna have to get a full panel interview Monday or Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And they did. They got me one on Tuesday. And so on Monday, we got some more bad news in the leadership meeting in the morning. And I was just up there like, yeah, we're not going to use the tool for a vertical slice, but we're still going to somehow keep working on it. I was just sitting there like this, like with the look on my face of like, I'm going to be handing in my resignation at noon. So I'm not going to make a big stink about this right now. How does that feel, Chris? Because I know for me, it's like bittersweet. There's a slight level of like, I don't give a fuck, but I have been giving a fuck. But you know, you're like out the door. There's a level of catharsis. No, <laughs> for me, I was trying hard to make it work. And it was one of those things that like, I, I was going to get the offer letter. And then like that Monday morning meeting, maybe go, I'm making the right decision, I think, to move on. That's got to feel good. When I quit Blizzard, I handed in my resignation after we had a big all hands art meeting about like fair wages and salary fucking pay at Blizzard. Yeah. And I like, I dropped some spicy comments in there. You're good at the unfiltered. I let them know that I have an offer from a company and I'm doing a final interview with the company tomorrow. I'm going to be moving on. Let's figure out a proper exit strategy, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm a That's lead. Fair. I got six direct reports. I got a lot of projects that I'm working on that nobody else knows how to do the stuff on. We've got a new tech art director starting next week. So I should probably onboard him. So I was thinking mentally like five weeks. Nice, man. That's really, really responsible. I was like, this week I'll, I'll do a bunch of documentation. I'll do two weeks onboarding for the new tech art director. And mm -hmm. then you guys are going to give me two weeks paid time off. Yeah. And then I'll start my new job. Do they do the whole like infinite PTO? Yeah. And you, instead what happened was is they, they were saying nice things to my face in the little chat because I messaged a small group of people. I'm like, and the CPO just went to over to IT and said, shut off all of his accounts. That day, that moment, that day, I was literally having a video conversation with our HR director with my VPN cut out and my video dropped from the call and I couldn't rejoin the phone call, the video call. Cause it said your Google account password changed an hour ago. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And they were like, yeah, your health insurance ends tomorrow night. I was like, well, that's nice. Yo, talk about taking it hard. Is that normal? Is that common? Had you heard of other people going through that at the team? The only person I've talked to who got let go that I know of, it was kind of a rapid thing for him. And they were like, he was told like, you know, you and Servios aren't compatible, mm. but I don't know okay. what the operating process was, but then they, you know, they're like, all right, we'll give you two weeks pay, but you got to send your equipment back for us to give you that pay. And then you can't say anything bad to anybody. I'm like, okay. Sign some NDAs. Sign yeah. some shit. And then, but it was, and then they sent me a thing like, then they realized how much crap I was doing at work. They're like, oh, hey, can you like give us some detail about the things you're working on? I'm like, yeah, if you pay my contractor rate. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, I was going to stay on. I'm like, but now you got to pay my contractor rate. And that's going to be based on my new Amazon salary. 
my contractor rate is double what my, my hourly rate and whatever I'm, my work is because of my free time rate. That's a pretty good rule of thumb as well for a lot of people that don't know, right? Like I've made the mistake of being like, oh yeah, what, what, what am I going to charge for like contractor hourly basing it off what my full-time salary is? And that's a big mistake, right? Because you got to factor in, you got to pay your benefits, you got to pay for your vacation. Benefits, vaca- all that other stuff. And so what I do is like, hey, if I was going to be working on the weekend at work, what would I be wanting to pay me? I'd be wanting to yeah. pay you double time. Yeah. So you get to pay my weekend rate. <laughs> now that's like 200 bucks an hour or something, a little over. So what did they say? What did they, they what did they agree to? Didn't respond. <laughs> I was like. See how valuable I, it was to them. Literally what I was trying to do was to offboard this exact content responsibly. At your current salary. At my, what was going to be cheaper to you salary. Yeah. Over the next five weeks, you know, and they didn't respond back. So I was like, okay. That's an easy breakup. A couple of my direct reports are going to be quitting. Oh, because you're leaving? Yeah, because they were there for me, basically. Did you bring them aboard? I hired five tech artists in under a year in the current marketplace at low salary wage. Like a bunch from Blizzard or ones that you had worked with before? I brought one from Blizzard. Well, he had left Blizzard and then I poached him. And then I brought in some other people and I did a shit ton of hiring and so many screening calls. And I had to like run around and convince people that certain jobs were needed and stuff. I want to ask, man, because I always found tech artists to be an extremely rare resource and always well worth their weight in gold if they're good and experienced and been around a while. But I don't roll in the same circles you roll. I, I, I feel like they're hard to come by. And here you are picking up like five in a year. Dude, I'm literally hiring you. I'm like, and the thing is, is. I created good job descriptions that I know tech artists want. I didn't mm. just say HR, I need to hire some senior tech artists. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I need a senior animation technical artist that's going to be doing blueprint animation graph, you know, animation state machines, logic, in-game IK. That's what they're doing. And I got that guy, right? And I'm like, yeah. I want to do, I want to hire a Houdini procedural environment pipeline technical artist who's going to be making Houdini and blueprint tools for environment artists and mobile designers to use in engine. And that's all he's going to be doing. Okay. And he's going to be a fucking rock star. And I found that guy. All right. And it was one of those things like that guy was working in Brazil. His dad was getting sick and like his current company wasn't going to let him work. He's like, is it okay if I work from Brazil? I'm like, yeah. He's like, is it okay if on Wednesdays, like I leave work at like three or four Pacific time? Cause mm-hmm. I'm going to have like evening church group. I'm like, dude, I know there's like three of those guys. I'm going to complain about Wednesday evenings. He leaves a little before core hours. Like, <laughs> So it sounds like the trick is you got to be very specific and know exactly what you want when you're putting that job description together and, and sending it out there. And, and then crucially be able to pay because they're in high competition right now. Yeah, for TAs and TDs for sure. I was really excited when you hit me up that you wanted to come on, you wanted to do the interview, you wanted to come on the podcast and what specifically you wanted to offer. And, and you came to me with the topic on disruptive thinking. And I'm curious to see where this is going to go. Right. And on top of the fact that you would think however long games have been in development, however many console generations we've gone through, tools keep evolving, expertise keeps changing, workflows keep growing. Well, it's like literally my job description. I'm a pipeline technical artist. It's like, I am a professional boat rocker. Right? <laughs> like you're literally hiring me to improve the way you're doing things. Uh-huh. Right. You want me to help make things better. And I would compare it to kind of hiring a master burglar to come test out my security system or something. 
kind of like that. It's kind of similar to like a white hat hacker, but you have to have somebody that's in the mindset of thinking outside the box, coloring outside the lines, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, you're going to pay me a lot of money. You don't want to pay me a lot of money to color inside the lines, mm -hmm. right? Other people to color inside the lines. You, you hire me to redefine what the lines are. You know what I mean? I like that. I like that analogy a lot. It helps too, because of your experience and your exposure to a bunch of different creative suites, software applications, programming languages, engines, pipelines, engines. Yeah. Let's not talk about engines that you can like borrow a little bit from everywhere and then also plug in the gaps that you've seen repeated over the years. My dad's a philosopher and he taught me to question everything from a young age, which at some places he mildly regretted that. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine like to ask your kid you know I, I got a, I got a little one on the way I think that's what you want right you want a curious inquisitive mind but yeah. I can also see someone running low on patience one day and be like stop asking damn questions yeah and I remember being there a couple of times I think we were out in the we were in the backyard and they were trying to like they had a car or a trailer and they were trying to like lift it up to do a thing and I was like you guys could do this a lot easier if you just did this or that. And they all got angry at me because I'm like 12 or whatever. And they're like, there's no way this 12 year old is going to have a better idea than us. A couple different, you know, 30, 40 year olds or whatever. Uh -huh. They're like, just shut up or go away. And I'm like, that's kind of what Servios did. Huh? I'm like, I'm, I'm just trying to save your old 40 year old backs, man. Like, <laughs> you know, use physics, use and, physics uh, and leverage. So I've kind of always been like that a little bit where it's like, there's an established way of doing things. And I'm like, well, here's a way we could do things that's maybe better. I kind of look at things from a different angle. Yeah. I think those skills have served you well. I think they, they can apply to many different roles and applications, but bringing them into technology, bringing them into the wild west that is video game development. I can see how that served you well. So I got into blacksmithing. I'm a certified blacksmith. It means like you're, you're like welding weapons and playing with metal and stuff. Traditional hand forging. Look at that. What do you call that? Like a cleaver or like a, a broadsword? I call this an orcish scimitar. That looks like some shit you got at Blizzard. Well, so the thing is, is I was the only blacksmith at Blizzard. So when I hit my five years, I forged my own five-year sword as well. Oh, yo, can I say that I love the fact that the handle kind of gives you this, this kind of brass knuckle thing. And then the tip on the other end has definitely got like a twofold, like wrench kind of thing, but also you can kind of stab someone. Do you recognize it? I don't. It's the horde symbol for the oh. orcs in Warcraft. And in the handle, I've got tooled Loktar, which means victory or death in Orcish. And so you can see the symbol there as well. Yo, that is fine craftsmanship, friend. I don't want to downplay the fact that an artist in real world and a 3D artist, right? Like, I don't want to assume that that's easy just because you got mastered in one medium, you, you automatically are good at it in the other medium. I got a whole sort of 3D to real world, like business strategy planned up for a side business. I'll talk, talk about later, but right. actually when I was making this flipping hammer right here, right? So at the guild, there's all of these old timers, right? There's these old blacksmiths. When you say the guild. The blacksmith guild I was in, in Orange County down there. Okay. And so there's this old guy, he's a character, right? He's one of those, well, this is the way you do things. And I did a bunch of research. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. One of the things I love to do is I like to watch every video about somebody who makes the thing and try and pull all the parts and sort of make sense of it for myself and then make my own good decisions with all that information base, right? You know, based on these videos, I think I want to do a hourglass shaped hammer eye and some other stuff. And I want to have a rounding face and a flattening face. And cause I made my, 
I still like maybe the only blacksmith who was there who made his own. I made two hammers now, but mm-hmm. uh, I haven't smith in a while. But I was sitting there and I was drawing it out on the anvil. And the old guy was arguing with me. He was like, oh, well, that's not how you do it. You got to blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, this seems like this is going to work really well. He's like, well, the person you need to talk to is Brent Bailey. He's the man to talk to about hammersmithing. You don't know what you're talking about. And so that guy ended up holding a hammersmithing class at this event called Wayne's World. And I went and that old guy went with me and he was sitting there and he drew the exact fucking thing on the, on the chalkboard that I drew on the anvil. He's like, you want an hourglass thing? That way we wedge it. And I was just like, kind of looked over at the old guy who was kind of like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Validation. So this is the way we've always done things has uh, never been a good reason for me to do anything that way. Word up, man. Word up. That is a too easily accessible cop out for an explanation for why you're making a decision, right? Like yeah. I, I'm with you, especially in 2022, where the world has been flipped upside down and we question everything and we can work remote now, make games from home. That was one of my things as I was sitting there like at Blizzard. I was like, man, you guys need to, uh, we need to do remote work because it works. You know, I'm not going to be able to afford to retire or send my kid to school with the, the salaries we're paying and the cost of living in the area. That was Irvine, right? That was in Irvine. Yeah, man. Yeah. Low income line was $90,000. Damn, bro. If you gave me 90000 in Austin, Texas, when we started out, Dude, I would have living we'd like be, a king. We'd be rolling, we'd both be rolling around like, I'd be like, <laughs> I'm going to buy another car this year. Like, <laughs> buy, buy another five bedroom crib with a pool. I know, man. In a boat. I started at Midway at $12 an hour, man. So you were a contract at Midway. I got hired as an intern at Midway. Fresh out of the guild hall? Actually, no. So what happened was I, w- I got out of the guild hall and then I went to Apple. I worked at Apple for two weeks. Damn. So I went to Apple. I was in their two weeks paid training program for doing direct dispatch work. I was actually working at, if you, maybe if you'll know this name, I was working for, I think it was Volt Temporary Employees. Right. They, oh, are they like a, a what do you call those? Like, like ten power temp, temp agencies? Yeah, it's like a temp agency. So I yeah. was working through Volt for Apple. Dude, Apple did have the best fucking breakfast bar in that. They in had Austin. they had a pay by the pound breakfast thing. Didn't matter what you got, you put it on the tray, you pay by the pound. I go in there, I get like eggs and bacon piled like this high, sausages and orange juice, and it'd be like that'll be like two dollars and twenty six cents. That sounds so fucking Texas. <laughs> I love it. And I interviewed at Midway. I actually went up to the guild while I was at Apple. They were doing a, a job fair at Guild Hall, and I went up there. And and so I, you know, I saw the posting at Midway. I went over. I thought I was there interviewing for a full artist position. I was like, I have my portfolio ready. I'll print it out with the pages with the with the a hard portfolio, right? Not not a digital portfolio. Insane. I had my button up shirt with my tie because I didn't know you did do that in the game industry. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, this is what, like 2006, 2007? 2006, yeah. yeah. And uh, they're like, well, uh, you know this position's for uh, an intern position, right? You're like, I was like, okay. And then they called me up and they offered, they're like, we're going to offer you the job. It's for $11 an hour. Do you remember who you interviewed with? Oh, man. I think it would have been Sergio Rosas. Yeah, yo, I think he's got like his own little CG bot outsourcing house. Fucking. I got a funny story about that too, about him leaving. They call me up and they're like, we're going to offer you a position for 11 bucks an hour as an intern. I'm like, I'll t- I said, Apple's paying me $11 an hour now. They're like, okay, we'll do 12. So I was the highest paid intern at like 12 bucks an hour. Hell yeah. I think, I think you were making what I was making too, man. I was full-time salary, but 
Dude, I argued big, some big jumps for myself while I was there. You were doing a lot of work. You were doing a lot of key work nobody else was even thinking about, though, from, from, a, from the jump. My official job description was to search Google Images for reference work. That's what I was officially hired for there. What is that even called? Like, that, that's an actual job, though. It's making it? ref packs, right? You're like, oh, we're going to make a fucking propane tank. And then you go get a bunch of pictures of propane tank. You do some material callouts. And then they were going to have me start. I started making some proxy models. Mm-hmm. They'd send the proxy model that was scaled correctly with the ref pack to outsourcing and they, and they would fully make it and send it back. Okay. The was, is I was really, really fast and my proxy models were really, really good. So outsourcers were just texturing my proxy models. What? And you remember Gary Bergeron? Yeah. Hell yeah. Gary he B. He's like, Chris, you got to do a worse job on these proxy models. I'm like, I, I don't know how to do a worse job. <laughs> like I'm already making these like three times faster than the other guys are. Yeah, he, he wanted you to do I was them like, faster. I'm like, yeah. not even UVing them. He, he didn't want me to do it faster. He just wanted me to do a worse job. So they would just texture them and send them back, right? <laughs> and so I ended up doing a bunch of package cleanup. And then I started basically owning all of the destructible environments for Black Sight. Mm-hmm. We had, what was it called, man? Like, damn it, man, the Midway Breakables, right? That was a big Midway deal. Midway Breakables, the stuff they were doing on Stranglehold. We had yeah. like 3.5 of their tech. Well, yeah, like literally, like we didn't have things like hinges, right? For our physics setup. Like, like yeah. I had no hinges. I had no, there was a whole bunch of constraint types I didn't have. And there was some damage <laughs> propagation types I didn't have. Remind me, Unreal 3 had some proprietary physics. They brought it in right after we shipped Blacksite. And then Midway had, was using Havoc. I did a side-by-side comparison of the Apex. I think it that may have been the, I don't know if that was the introduction of the Apex destruction tool set, mm. which is now deprecated. I actually did a side-by-side comparison and evaluation of the midway breakable tech versus whatever it was. I don't know if it was Apex, but it was, there was some in-engine breakable system, mm-hmm. but that got introduced right after I was we evaluating should. it for criminal, right? Yes. And I was like teaching the senior, but I, I learned the breakable pipeline. I learned how it worked. I did the physics setup, the destructible, other stuff. Worked with Brian Irk. Brian Irk was actually doing me a task. I would make the full breakable and then I would hand it off to him and he would add the effects to it. And then I don't remember Chris Ledwitz. Of course, man. He was like, he was like our best physics programmer. Okay. And uh, I've always ended up working with physics programmers everywhere I go. Uh, like my put, a, put a good TA with a good physics programmer and a good effects artist. And watch the magic happen. Yeah, and so I we changed our physics engine halfway through Blacksite. I don't know if you remember that. I think we sh- we shifted the physics from Bullet. Oh my gosh, yo! As soon as you say Bullet, that thing brings me back some crazy nostalgia moments. I remember sitting down at the gym with him on that, and everything so was, was ragdolling. I was, teaching, I was teaching like seniors and other people how to use the system, and then like it was kind of too complex, so I was kind of the only guy. My proudest moment on Blacksite though was so the fucking shooting out the tires in the vehicles. Yeah. Midway Chicago, who had the full version of the breakable tech, who had the in-house people working on it, yeah, could not make that work. Midway Chicago is now Nether Realms. Yeah. Yeah. And so I made that work with half the tech and no support for them, just on my own with like ingenuity, doing some fucking black magic, like swappable collision objects. I got flattening tires, which they said, like we literally had email with them. They said, it's not possible. They were like, all right, well, we might be able to get a programmer to work with you to make something like, I think I could probably figure it out. Give me like a week or something. And I like, I got it working. And they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> a week. What do you remember what it entailed? Like, was no, it yeah, just yeah, a lot of trial crazy. and error? That crazy. What I ended up doing was I ended up making it so that we shoot it swapped to a fragment. 
So I made a fragment that was an already shot sort of collapsed tire. Yeah. With a modified collision and the whole vehicle actually sat on the tires collisions. And I made a collision cage out of multiple primitives so that when you shot the tire out, it swapped. And so the vehicle and the tire would drop down. Right. And then you'd be like, pop, pop. and <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So it would kind of have that like and stair like, steppy effect. Well, and, and so what happened is, is, I mean, it just kind of worked pretty naturally. You could hop in the back of it. And then, you know, if you'd shot one out and it just like worked and they were like, all right, we're going to come up with this crazy system where like, it's going to know which tire you shot out and it's going to have like a collision platform that's going to swap in that will represent the shape. I'm like, yeah. no, I just, and I made it work. And then there was like one time in like 10,000 or whatever, a tire would go a little ape shit and fly out in outer space. Oh yeah. Those physics bugs. It was one of those things like I blew up those vehicles hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hundreds. <laughs> this is the but hard I, part of the I job. Like once and QA never bugged it for me. So I'm like, all right, that's an acceptable repro. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. I guess, especially on a first, you know, essentially a single player game. I don't think that there were any vehicles in the multiplayer. Oh man. I had to, that was one of the things that sucked too. So at the end of that project, I ended up working some hundred hour, five day weeks mm -hmm. because they're like, here's they fed the us though. It was like, they were like, here's the six, ass food. Here's the 60 breakable environment objects we want to get done over the next two weeks. And I got 40 done over the next two weeks. Midway Chicago was making like one a week. Yeah. I made 40 in two weeks. I worked 20 hours straight, leave at midnight, drive home in my Cooper and drive back at like four in the morning. And then they didn't have time to implement them all. Oh. Yo, killer, man. <laughs> the good the good thing about Midway Austin Studio, they kept the power on. There's a big parking lot. They had arcades, fridge. Everything was fully stocked. How did you feel shipping Black Side Area 51? I was proud of it. I was sad when we cut co-op. Oh, my gosh, yo. I was so sad. I was sitting there with Matt Green. Like, we were playtesting co-op. We're like, dude, once we get some of these bugs figured out, this is going to be so fun. Because it was like Halo 3 had shipped around that time, right? And I think that we had them in our crosshairs. And do you know that my level, topside, second to last level, I got co-op working contiguously from end to end. Dude, I was playtesting that level with Matt Green, man. I was like, I was like, this is this shows. And then we had to ship. We had to cut, we had, we had to cut six months off our ship day. Yeah, dude. Could you show six months? Six months is, we I think, three months. Three months can make or break we a project. We would have gone, gone from a 70. Yeah. To a high 80s or 90. I agree. I agree, man. Like, at least, at least high 80s. Not only that, we released in the same release window as Halo 3 and... Modern Warfare. Modern Warfare. Was it, was it Red Dead Redemption as well? The first no, no, no. Red Dead Redemption was years later. Later. But... There was like... But, because GTA oh. 4, GTA 4 was coming, I think, soon. Yeah. But it was definitely Orange Box. It was Rock Band. It was Assassin's Creed 1. Oh, yeah. Modern Warfare. Assassin's Creed, God of War, Halo. There were two or three first-person shooters, too. Halo 3, Modern Warfare, and Orange Box, right? Like, and those, so, and Bioshock was not too far out of in yeah. that window. Was it also the first Mass Effect? I remember it was an insane release schedule. And then the only competition we were going to have at our original ship date was GTA. Yeah. It was basically like everybody on the heels of Gears of War rocking unreal engine three right like it was basically everybody pumping it the next year i, I bought the studio copy for gears of war uh-huh i was still a contract at the time it came out and they hadn't ordered one for the studio yet and they were talking about it. i'm like i'm gonna go get mine after work and they're like 
we'll pay you to go get it now. If you'll get one for us too, we'll reimburse you. I'm like, you're going to pay me to go drive down there and buy a video game in the middle of the day? Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, achievement unlocked. That was right before I got my Mini Cooper. Yo. I was driving my dad's 86 MR2 with T-tops, and I drifted that shit all the way <laughs> to uh, the Arboretum, to the GameStop of the Arboretum. Arboretum. I picked, up, I picked up two copies of Gears of War, and I drifted all the way back. <laughs> Did like three donuts around one of the stop, one of the pole lights at the parking lot because it was empty. Dude. And then handed the handed the box over to, I think it was Richie. Yeah, Richie Romero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, that, that's a great game for anybody looking at it from an art standpoint at the time, right? For its time. Oh, yeah. Looking at the way they were out. handling it. It was the how-to guide for making art in Unreal 3. Mm -hmm. What do they call it? They call it a beautiful destruction or something. It was one of those things. It was like, look at look, the way they're hiding stuff, the usage of detailed normal maps. It was kind of like our recipe for how we were going to make criminal, basically. Mm. We were partway through. We were getting to the end of Black Site. I went and talked to Pete Franco, and I was like, dude, you guys hired me to be an intern. And so, oh, yeah, so Sergio Rosas left, and he was the person who was managing the art interns. Yeah. So nobody was managing or tasking the art interns. So I ended up tasking the other interns myself. Wow. How, how? Is that just out of necessity? Yeah, it was just nobody was giving us work. And we were sitting around picking our noses. And I'm, I'm a guy, I can't sit on my hands. And I'm like, man, I don't want to Google. I want to game development. This is exciting. I want to do some oh, shit. Yeah. So I gave all the terrible work to them. hungry. <laughs> <laughs> all the good stuff. This is why we have managers. I took the work I thought was more interesting, but they probably wouldn't have wanted to do it. But uh, I was fixing up the package fucking package uh, uh, reference chains. Mm. Remember Unreal 3 had the, the package things where you load a package and it would reference another package. So it would load that whole package. And so that would load the things. And so you'd have this thing where you'd load one package and you might load the whole fucking game because of external references. Oh, man. So I went through and was manually fixing that. And this was the first time I learned about like going to ask people for help because I was sitting there. And there was some workflow I was doing. I came into the workflow that was like the most optimal, but yeah. it would crash Unreal like 15 times a day. Sure, everything. Unreal was so fragile in those yeah, days. And I remember in some like some like scrum meeting I was talking about. I was like, "Hey guys, like my Unreal crashes a bunch." It's like, "Well, how many times did you crash in a day?" I'm like, "I don't know, somewhere between fifteen and a hundred times a day." <laughs> and uh, I think it was Steve Bromley was like, "What? <laughs> Why? Why come and fucking talk to somebody about this?" I'm like, "I don't know. Is this not crashing for everybody else that much?" He's like, "No." What are you doing? I'm like, "Doing this," and he's like. I will submit a fix for that. Hold on. <laughs> Hell yeah. Steve was awesome, man. Steven Hurst, Steve Bromley. We had a lot of Steve. Steve Baker. Steve Baker. What does Steve Baker do? Oh, was he more he rendering was, side? Yeah, he was he was the guy who was like, remember oh, when no. every remember when all our characters on criminal turned blue on PS3? Because we ran out of some bullshit it, in the shader or the core. Bullshit in, in PS3. And I remember working with him on that and hit with him and Aaron Schmishny on the character customization system for our NPCs on criminal. We had these Atlas maps. I was, it was funny. I was just talking with him. He, he commented on a post on LinkedIn, like today or yesterday. And he said something and I was like, man, it's been a long time. He's like, it's, as I said, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be recording a podcast with another uh, midway Austinite, like, t like tomorrow or tonight or whatever. Speaking of Aaron, he works at Crystal now. Yeah. And I think he works with an old rock star designer, Alicia. I kind of reconnected with him recently. I got him on Facebook. We've been talking on LinkedIn a little bit. Man, he contacted me slightly too late. He's like, man, we're trying to hire. I looked on their website. They're hiring a senior pipeline technical artist for Unreal. Mm -hmm. I was like, 
man, it's too late. I'm in that stage now where I'm going to have to respond to Amazon within a week. And I got into the studio that I'm like, I've already got in the mix. I'm like, I literally am not going to have time today to even start a conversation thread. Do you still think after all of your experience 15 years later that you still got a thing or two you could pick up from Shmishni or, or maybe even show him? Yes to both. Okay. Hell yeah. Oh. I'm my own very particular flavor. I'm, I'm sort of a big picture pipeline guy. And I don't know, I'm assuming it's the same sort of in the technical design field, but games have gotten so big and so complex Yeah. that if you're going to be really good at what you're doing, you can't know everything within your sort of field, right? Yeah. And that was the thing at my last job was, you know, I'm like, hey, could I sit down and figure out some shader shit and make some shaders? Sure. Could I sit down and figure out some Niagara effects shit and figure that out? Sure. I have enough knowledge in all of the areas to be able to hold a good conversation and be sort of a, a good challenge network and a rubber ducky. But I'm like, I have a rendering specialist and he's making our material library. Right. Yeah. And so I'm providing support to him. I'm supporting that well, I'm being his lead and making sure he's tasked correctly, making sure he's got time on the schedule, making sure he's got R and D time, making sure we're ahead of the project's needs. Right. That's where my support was coming in. And I'm like, oh, and I'll sit down and write some complex, weird ass Python code to like do some shit that, you know, he doesn't want to do. He's going to make the, the cool material library system. Would you say that that is a key aspect of being a lead is to be able to at least understand what your reports do? Yes, there's always going to be a breakdown. And actually, that's one of the things that I look at when I'm looking for a technical artist. And I don't know if it's the same for technical designers. I look for somebody with a certain frame of mind and an, a certain attitude more than a certain skill set, right? In my opinion, it's easy to teach somebody how to do a thing mm -hmm. or to give somebody the time to learn how to do a thing, but it's hard to teach somebody how to think, how to problem solve on their feet, how to be engaged and be a good employee and be a good team member. That's yeah. much harder than being like, Hey, can you figure out how to go make a layered material? Cause like, any tech artist I hire, I'm going to be like, dude, you got two weeks. Go figure out how to make layered materials. Yeah. Like, they're going to be able to come back with a something. Is it going to be perfect? Depends on how good they are at materials already, right? Mm -hmm. But having somebody that's going to report back to you, talk to you, brainstorm with you, document it, like do an awesome job, communicate to all their stakeholders on the stuff, communicate back to you when there's an issue, plan with you, jam on stuff with you, be able to go 50 rounds with you on stuff. And one of the things, um, I don't know if you've read a book. There's a book by a guy named Adam Grant called uh, Think Again, The Value of Knowing What You Don't Know. It's a good book. I recommend it. I was recommended it by uh, the leadership coach over at Surveillance. They hired an external lady. Her name was Ann, Dr. Ann Bird. She's awesome. What was she hired on for? She was hired on just to do leadership training, mostly. That's awesome, man. You know, for all the leadership problems you alluded to, that's awesome that they pay for that and they, they try to coach. Yeah, she was an external contractor. And so I got like a once a month with her. She recommended a bunch of good books. There's another one called It's the Manager, which was really good. Okay. Me at. Another one, uh, Speed of Trust by uh, the Cubby guy. Is that what it's Franklin Cubby or Steve Cubby? And then there was uh, The Surprising Science of Meetings, which... I didn't find surprising. That was the first question she asked me after I read it. She was like, did you find it surprising? Probably not, right? She, I was like, no. But again, <laughs> it's one of those things like, it's interesting because a lot of these things were things I was already thinking. Yeah. Give me vocabulary to have a real conversation about it. That's what a lot of it is, right? A lot of learning and research is just giving people a shared lexicon to have conversations, right? That, that's the, even in games, you know, yeah. when you're building teams together that have never worked together and they've done 
similar things, just in different capacities, right? A big part of that and bringing you guys together and making you effective is like, how the hell do we refer to that in a way that we all understand? It's so interesting as well, because like, you know, you and I have been doing this gig a while now. When you came into Epic, I wager there was a bunch of people using, throwing around acronyms. You're like, wait, wait, what is that? Hell yeah, dude. You're like, wait, what is that? Like, you worked on Unreal and, you know, games in the past, you worked on, you know, you worked in the industry a long time. You've even worked on this engine a long time and people are like, you're like, wait, what the hell is that? What does that mean? Yeah. What does that code word mean? What is that an acronym for? One of the things I look for with people is somebody who's not ashamed to be like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Be able to say, I don't know. I don't know what I, that I is. What is that? I'll get back to me. And being able to do that in, um, so one of the things they talk about in, um, those books meld together, but I think it's think again by Adam Grant. They talk about a learning culture. There's the, is the combination of psychological safety paired mm. with accountability. So it's, you feel safe to say, Hey, what is that? Or this isn't great. And you know, that's going to be paired with somebody doing something about, it, right. And that's a learning that kind of like sparks a learning culture. And they talk about it, like examples at like NASA, where it was like, people didn't want to disrupt a launch, right? Even if it was like, and it was like, oh, well, we already did all this work. And then like, there was a lady who's like, hey, we shouldn't do launch today because of reasons. And they shut it down and there was like, oh, they're going to be hell to pay. But it was like, and they found out some, and then, but it was like, I want to say like, she had mentioned, I don't know if it was, she had mentioned previously that, that they should stop the launch and then something fucking exploded. Sure. Or it was like, we should stop the launch and like, then the thing didn't explode, right? And then, but they've been here like the head of fucking doing the launches, right? That's a good one to bring home, right? Like I always sit on the tales of thank goodness that what we do doesn't impact anyone's lives or put anyone's life at risk. But at the same side, if you can stop a launch, anything that we do, any decisions that we make should all be reversible, right? At our level, like yeah. people are super scared to to double back they're like oh no no no. we, we committed we made the decision this is the call we got to see it through even if it's the wrong one well and that's the whole sort of premise of agile development and and the, the, the thing that gets me is when you get into a team that's like we're doing agile development you're like hey guys what we're doing isn't working and Switch they don't up. stop and reevaluate <laughs> and everybody's like yeah it's not working but it's like but shit we don't have time so we just got to keep moving forward and you're yeah. like, well, guys, we're doing agile development where everybody acknowledges that what we're doing isn't working. So let's stop and figure out why it's not working. And then people don't want to do that. We're like, well, you're not really doing agile development then, are you? Like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. There's this other concept of a challenge network, which is sort of like the opposite of an echo chamber. And so one of the things I look for, and I talked about all of my team members, as I said, hey, guys, you guys are my challenge network. A challenge network is like the group of people you're like, when you have an idea or whatever you want to do, you want to bring it to a group of people who are going to criticize it the hardest, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the, the people who are going to unabashedly criticize the idea or rather completely and fairly evaluate the idea and make you aware of any problems with it. And it's called a challenge network. And so it's the group of people you, you go to to make sure that your idea is a good one. It's sort of the opposite of showing your mom your artwork and she's like, it's beautiful, honey. Yeah, you know she's always going to support you. She's not going to give it to you real. Right. It's like you want to you want to take it to somebody and be like, actually, it's hot garbage. And here's why. Yeah. Well, well, that that's the key part, right? Like the hot garbage part of the it's beautiful part yes. is one thing. But the here's why. Yeah. Is the key part that it's is the valuable. When you know that those people who you trust to say it's hot garbage say, yeah, that's a good idea. You have more faith in the idea that you're going to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Right. It's going to be a good one.
I had a guy, James Littlejohn, he was an effects artist at, at Servios and also really a, a tech artist, you know, there's that whole thing of like RV effects artists, tech artists. <laughs> and, uh, I literally had a conversation until like midnight with him one night. Like we started the conversation in the last meeting of the day and at like 1130, me and my rendering tech artist, Jordan, were still in the fucking Google me. The conversation went all over the place. Sure. But he was never shy about being like, well, I'm not sure about that. And we go 50 rounds on it and yeah. I'd come out of the space with a better understanding of the topic. Maybe I've changed my mind. Maybe I'm more sure of my state. He's very good at being open-minded about it too. Right. And so you have two open-minded people who are like wanting to come out of the situation with the best idea, not I'm precious about my idea. Mm -hmm. I want us to do the best thing. Right. That sounds ideal. And when you talk to me about that, Chris, I think that leads to a, the best team dynamic, right? It's a learning culture where people aren't scared to express their opinions or say, I don't know, or be open about an idea. And then B, keep all your eyes on the prize, which is, Hey, let's come out with the best idea that makes the most sense after we've all talked about it. And, and then the last part is to, Hey, let's go act on it. All of this sort of needs to happen in the space of being customer and product focused, right? Oh, okay. Right. That's and a good so call like, out. Because it, it, it can now, it can be a lot of fun to get caught in a conversation just about pure craft and that's sure. fun, but it's not always the most useful, right? <laughs> because there's this point of diminishing returns on quality that your customer is not going to notice, mm -hmm. right? And you're like, is what we're doing the best use of our time? for the customer and the, for the product. We ran into that on wow a whole lot where there's a term I love called pixel fucking. Ha. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, and you get into pixel fucking and it's like, you know, you're like, all right, what is the exact hue on this is the shadow on the underside of this fish that's hanging from this rack on this orc fishing hut over here, like the perfect hue. And you're like, okay, there's one person who's going to notice that. And that's your lead and nobody else. Yeah. Right. But it's like in the time we could spend talking about that, we could have built two other unique orc huts, which are going to have much more value to the customer, right? We can reduce the quality of this orc fishing hut by 1%, but get two or three other orc huts in the same time frame which is going to have a much bigger impact and value proposition to our customers mm -hmm. than on really dialing in on the hue of the bounce light of the shadow on that one fish on that orc hut, right? And we're like, I'm exaggerating a little no, bit. No, but it's like that. It's like that when you take what we do, you know, we're creative people. Yeah. And we each have, help me understand this a bit more, right? Like the spectrum between like neurotypical and neurodivergent. And, you know, I find I tend to err on the side of like compulsiveness, right? Where like things need to be in order or consistent or uniform. And if to your point about pixel fucking, if my comment box or my little script lines between the blueprint nodes are not aligned. Like I said, it's a balance with everything, right? Yes. Like you don't want to crush that creative spirit. What you hope is that everybody's sort of trying to keep everybody else in check a little bit and acknowledging when we're going past the point of diminishing returns, like, hey, are you in a core blueprint library that everybody else is going to use? Yeah. Reference and look at. Well, man, those comment boxes, 
And those perfect little line nodes. Also, John, you should check out a thing called electric nodes. It automatically makes your lines. Is that a plugin? It's a plugin. Try it out. Improve wire style for blueprints. Try that out. Oh, shit. You heard it here first, y'all. You're using it in a survey. There was a couple ones we're using. There's also blueprint screenshot, which will take a a full res screenshot of your entire blueprint node graph for sharing with people. I found another website that lets you kind of like copy and paste the text. Yeah, you you could do the share. I like that one. I wanted us to look at using that one. Because it's free. It's like lives on GitHub, I think. My only question there is, is like, are you uploading proprietary stuff? Yes. That's but the thing. Because you're working at Epic this. now and you guys share most of your shit out. Now I don't know if you guys now you're working on you're working on Fortnite, right? Yeah, yeah. Well I'm like the creative side of things. Epic's at the top of my list of like there's like a couple companies that are on my like list of places left to work. And I'm like I'm looking at Amazon for like machine learning and some other I'm definitely gonna ask you more about dream places to work, but I wanna get into the thing we highlighted here when we first spoke a bit ago, like life as a neurodivergent person journeying through the industry. I got to ask you about life at Blizzard, right? Because it seems like yeah. the holy grail nirvana for a lot of us. It's definitely one of those like, don't meet your heroes things. It's yeah. funny because like, this interview is a good example because like, I forgot to take my damn pill today. <laughs> and so our first hour of this conversation is just all over the place, right? It's good stuff. It's good stuff. I think a lot of people listen to podcasts. They listen to it in increments. You know, they listen to a bit and come back. So to those people, it'll be good. To the people that listen in one sitting, I'll be curious to hear their feedback. Oh, it's a crazy train here. A lot of us game devs are on the spectrum. I am definitely, I'm very, very ADHD. What does that mean? I think people throw that thing out there. It's a deficit hyperactivity disorder. What does that mean? Does that mean easily distracted, easily lose focus? For me, I think I'm in an interesting space where I'm fairly certain I'm also uh, a high functioning autistic. Okay. There's a lot of kids that were ADHD kids. Like you can have both ADHD and autism. And for a lot of kids who were diagnosed with ADHD, ADHD will mask a lot of the symptoms of autism. Mm. Right. And so it's hard to see. And my daughter was autistic. Is it genetic? Is this something you passed down? Yeah. Yeah, it can be genetic. And so it's actually rarer for a female to get autism than a male. More prevalent in men, huh? I had my son tested and he's not, but I was sitting there reading about it, about the symptoms and the signifiers and what it meant, how it affected you. And I was like, holy shit, almost all of this applies and I haven't been officially tested, but it's one of those things that like, I also haven't been officially tested for PTSD, but I have 99.9% of the symptoms of it. So like I've got ADHD and I suffer from anxiety, depression, and PTSD. For some of those who know me, my daughter passed away from cancer in 2013, literally like a month after I started at Blizzard. And it was one of those things of like Activision actually let me go after I told them my kid had cancer to save themselves some bills. Right. This was Vicarious Visions. Yeah. That was back in 2011. And that was before Activision Blizzard merged. Uh, no, it was after. It was after. It was after. Okay. And then I worked at a small company that was kind of awful in the intermediate called First Playable. They treated me real bad. And so, you know, when interviewed at Blizzard, she was in a declining state at this point. And you got to like, you're in that state where you're like, man, I, I got to keep face. I got to make it through my interview. And it's one of those things where ADHD actually could sort of like help out because like, you get hyper-focused and it's one of those things where like on the right day, man, I can get four other people's work done. 
Yeah. And then there's days where I'm like, man, I didn't get any, I didn't get shit done today. And I feel like a total asshole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you get in the zone, everything else disappears and the your hyper focus sets in. And, you know, I've got a very high IQ. I am somewhere on the genius spectrum, but it's one of those things. I only give a read wheel of time. Should I? There's this whole like magic system and there's like the male half and the female half. And they describe the male half as like the female half is like you surrender to it and it's calm. It'll take you along for the ride and it'll do what you want as long as you surrender it. And the male half is like avalanches of fire and ice and you have to <laughs> control it and you can barely manage it. And it's a torrent of rage. I'm like, I feel like that's trying to control my brain. Oh, it's sort of like trying to manage the. The male half of magic in the Wheel of Time series for anybody who's read the series. And it's funny because I have another friend who's ADHD and I he's read Wheel of Time. And I was talking to him, he was like, Yeah, it's kind of like that. He's like, he thought he thought he thought it was a good analogy too. You've got to kind of surrender to where you are that that particular day, right? It's not something that you can kind of like hone in. That's like the the other one. And this one is just like spending all of your energy wrestling your brain to stay on track. And then occasionally. It falls into perfect alignment with what you're doing. It's yeah. like if what you're doing is interesting and exactly mm-hmm. what you want to do. Everything else disappears. Yes. And you operate at like 10x efficiency. You don't have any bodily needs to go use the restroom. You're not hungry. So it's like those times like, you know, you look up and it's one in the morning and you're like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. I didn't eat dinner, but I beat the game I was playing. You know, so you think that's a superpower byproduct of ADHD on the right day, on the right day. Right. And on the wrong day, it's, it's a struggle to stay on track, you know, and I I developed a lot of mechanisms for sort of dealing with that. Well, I'm curious if you would share any of those, right? Like any top two. I think one of the most, the best strategies for an ADHD person, and it's kind of weird is be interested in everything. Because the whole thing is, is like, and you know, to my wife's chagrin, it's like, it's not that I don't want to take out the garbage, right? Uh-huh. It's just that it doesn't occur to me because it's so disinteresting. I totally hear that. That resonates with me tenfold. My brain just filters some things out. Mm-hmm. And so what I have to do is make myself invested in a lot of things. And once I'm invested and interested in a lot of things, then I'm less likely to like let that slip off my radar. Okay. So that's sort of one strategy. And that's the thing I'm trying to, you know, work on with my kid is getting him interested in everything, right? Be oh. interested and invested in everything. Well, curious is curious, a suitable alternative. Curious right now. There's certain things that are just like, okay, doing your taxes. That's not interesting. <laughs> getting a big tax refund that you can spend the money on something fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Right. You got to train mm. your brain to frame things that you don't want to do as interesting or understanding the positive outcome of it. You got to tread some of those neural pathways to train yourself in seeing the advantage, the outcome, the interest in a situation that you might not normally see as interesting. At work, doing what you do, especially, you know, being a team lead, having reports, being an IC, how has that served you over the years? Well, so I kind of went into the leadership track because historically, Tech art has been, at least in the places I've worked and the situations I've been in, I sort of have felt that we didn't have a strong voice in the development. I didn't have strong leadership. I didn't have a strong advocate for me. Yeah. The leadership and the management side. 
especially being sort of a neurodivergent person, it's kind of a melancholy feeling, but it's like people appreciate what I can do, totally. but don't as much appreciate who I am. They'll put up with me for what I can do. It's kind of a feeling that's happened at several different places I've been at. Right. And so I'm, that's one of the things I'm kind of on is I'm kind of on a journey for a place that it has both. Mm -hmm. They realize that I can save them tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. Hey, absolutely. But also we're like, yeah, he's kind of weird. <laughs> right. And that's cool. Not like, okay, I guess we'll tolerate him for what he can bring to us, but we'll celebrate him for who he is and what he does for us. Right. Hell yeah, Chris. I feel like game developers, we're all weirdos and finding the right studio or the right team and culture is finding your particular taste. Right. And you know, I think, I think Midway had a really magic lot. It was man. I was like, I mean, there was, there were things that were not great about it, but man, it was sort of this magic confluence of like, I think part of it is just like that Austin vibe as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Austin, that like, you know, hey, Boston weird, Boston weird, man. And like, we were in a weird place doing weird stuff, having a good <laughs> time and, you know, From all over. There was probably a bunch of awful that we weren't exposed to at the time, but man, yeah, at our pay grade, it felt, it felt great. And there was some stuff that was definitely going on behind the scenes in some places, but you know, we had that magic sort of experience of like, Hey, you know, we had a female studio head and we had, and she was awesome. I'm not one of those persons who will all have a conversation with anybody. And I, I remember going up and being awkward and like, Oh, is that, hey, is that Denise? Denise? Yeah. I remember talking to Denise about like, like my wife was pregnant. Denise Fulton, I think was her yeah. name. I don't know if that was her maiden name or what, but yeah, that I was talking to her about prenatal care or something. Cause I was like, she was just like, we were just like had a conversation and I was like, how are you my wife? And I don't know if that impacted my ability to get like a full-time position, but it was one of those <sighs> things that was like, I remember coming to, uh, Mike Jones, the first good Mike producer Jones. I ever had. I've had two now. I've had two good producers. Damn. Mike Jones and then a guy at Servio. So I was working real closely with named Trevor. He was awesome. What made Mike Jones and Trevor great producers? Different, different things. The thing with Mike Jones, I remember being just like, I mean, even I could get at the time I was an intern and I moved into an associate, but like. When I said that I was going to look for a new job or whatever, I talked to Mike Jones and Mike Jones went and sorted it. I told him, I said, Hey man, I got a full-time offer from another company. It's for just an environment artist position. I like working here, but my, my wife is pregnant and I have, I'm out of contract and I got no health insurance and man, they're going to offer me health insurance. And literally that's going to make the difference. And yeah. fucking three days later, Richie Romero came over me with an envelope for like, or maybe it was Oak. It was Oak and Richie. Oak Young. Ella came over to me and they're like, we're going to offer you a full-time position as an associate technical artist. And I was like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Save the day. I'm a big guy. You see this chair right here. I would say it's like a typical gamer chair. This is a secret labs Titan XL. Right. Oh. The biggest fucking chair they make. Yeah. Cause like the shoulder rests go above your shoulders and the headrest is over your head. It's the only chair that ever fit me. I got a big ass torso. I got some short little legs. So I'm good at driving sports cars. Clutching. You mean on that clutch. I remember like I was having back pains at Midway cause they got these office chairs that come up to here on me. Mm-hmm. And they had those big conference room chairs and somebody left them out in the hallway for like two weeks. And I was like. Almost steal one of those chairs for my desk. 
And I was like, oh, my back pain went away. And then like, they sent out a fucking email. It was like, hey, people, please return the chairs. And I, I went and talked to Mike. I was like, Mike, I was having a lot of back pain and shit. And this chair fixed my back pain. I'm like, can I keep this chair? And he's like, I'll go handle it. And I never heard about it again. And he handled it. And he'd come around to my desk, you know, once a day, every other day. What are you working on, Chris? What do you need? What's your problem with you? And I'd be like, man, I got two or three people that are coming at me with requests. I can't do all of them. Here's who's talking to me. Here's the requests. Here's what I'm working on right now. Can you go figure out the priorities and come back to me? And he would go take care of it and come back and be like, Chris, work on this. Hell yeah. Thank you. Right. Yes. Didn't have to go to a meeting. Didn't have to go to a bunch of shit. It was just like, Mike Jones would go take care of it. He'd go figure it out. He'd go talk to all the people. And he come back. I was like, you know, I was an associate slash intern. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mike's such a good people person. I've got, a, I've got art director and art lead and another art lead and another art lead who are like, Chris, you need to do these things. And I was like, Mike, go figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you probably, you want to say yes to all of them, right? I yeah, wonder no, if yeah, like, that... I, I, like I said, I like, it's a strength, but it's also, it's one of those, there's a double-edged sword liking everything, John. Being interested like, in man, everything. Yeah, man, I want to work on fucking Niagara particle effects and physics setups. And also I want to write some back-end Python API code. And I also want to write a tool. Uh -huh. or, man, I also want to do some leadership. And it's one of those things like, I've become interested in everything, but then you're like, you can't, you don't have time for everything. Mm, so it, it's, kind, it's a double-edged sword, but you know, it's, you know, one of those things where you have to sit down and look at like, well, the problem becomes when you don't have enough people to tackle, it's easy when I'm like, oh, fucking, all right, I got my technical animator guide. I got my material guy. So I just, I don't have to worry about those areas. Mm -hmm. But when you're like, man, there's like three areas of work where I'm the only person who can do the thing. That's what yeah. starts to get tricky. It especially gets tricky when you're a lead and you're happy, you're the, you're the most qualified primary contributor in that area. That's where stuff starts to get pretty stressful where you're like, I need to hire people to do this. Like I'm in meetings 30 hours a week of meetings. I also got to do all this stuff. And you're like, man, I need to get some people hired for this stuff and uh, learning to not commit to things that you're not going to have time to do, especially as a person who like one of my primary motivations in the industry, in my job space is I like to help people. And my other producer, Trevor, who was really good. My first example, I'm an intern. I'm an associate. Now I'm a lead. As Servios. Again, he's one of those people who I feel like is a challenge network for me. He's telling me what's real. He's not like coddling me. He's not telling me what I want to hear. Mm -hmm. He's helping me make real hard decisions. And as a lead, I feel like that's one of my responsibilities is to make real tough decisions and communicate that to my people and make sure my people aren't being over scheduled. And we were sitting down like, Hey, how do we want to schedule and task this out? How do we want to run this team? I said, historically tech art hasn't been run well. Tools teams haven't been run well. And so mm -hmm. we sit down and we look at like, Hey, how have you run things in the past? And let's look at how we want to run things. And we iterate on process and he's changing his process and I'm changing my process and we're sitting down and working on things and communicating to each other. And planning around the realities of the project and trying to communicate those realities to other teams and just looking at the production side of the process. Cause I've had to be my own producer for so long, but that doesn't mean I was mm. doing a good job at it. Yeah. I was doing a better than a lot of people job at it, but that doesn't mean I was doing a good job at it. Right. It just mm -hmm. means I was better than whoever the hell else was there. But, uh, you know, really sitting down and looking at. Uh, at diving into the process at getting things 
marked up, but having real hard conversations, man, that guy was producing like six teams. Damn. Six teams he was producing. And I was like, man. It's like, like every discipline. Imagine if he had just been my producer. Holy crap. Like, what could we have done together? You know what I mean? Yeah. But was he kind of like the art producer or he was cross-disciplinary? He was tech art and our DevOps producer and sure. our producer for a lot of our eng engineering teams. And then also some of our like feature teams. Okay. So all over the place. I mean, there were some times where he was in two or three meetings at the same time. Huh. Virtually. Because I'd be like, just in case he's in another meeting and I'm like, I need him to take a note or do a thing or I need his feedback on something. I'd be like, hey, Trevor. <laughs> That's crazy. I can't do that, man. I've tried the two meeting thing when it's, uh, you know, like kind of all hands versus kind of like a stand up thing. You know, you can kind of. I don't even try it. That's one of those things for me personally, like. I can't have a conversation and take notes. Like I know yeah. that about myself. I learned that back in college. I could pay attention to what's going on. And I would say, or take notes, but you can't take good notes if you're not paying attention to what's going on. So what happens if I try and take notes, I get garbage notes and I don't know what was happening. How do you get by like that then? Do you got to like record the meeting? Oh, it depends. Well, I'm actually pretty good at just retaining all the information if I pay attention. Oh, wow. Usually for other people. In college, I actually paid a note taker to take notes for me. They offered a service to me because I was ADHD and they say, Hey, you go into your class, find somebody to take notes for you. At the end of the semester, they'll get a hundred bucks. You guys a college student like, Hey, who wants to take notes? Who wants a hundred dollars at the end of the course is for every course you're in. And I remember being in my world history class, the hottest girl in the class also took the best notes, right? Totally had her take notes for me. And, uh, I never really read them. I only used them to help my friend, Sean, who was in the class with me study. Uh -huh. I just paid attention and I interacted and I participated and it was highly lecture based and she took really good notes and I made the highest grade in the class and she made the second highest grade in the class and she was like pissed. Oh <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen that. I've seen that. Like, oh, why? Well, how did I, yeah. How did I lose? Yeah. I've seen that. I almost never referenced notes except to help my friends study for the stuff. But like, I'm pretty good at, if it's an engaging I, I soak it in. If I'm involved, if I'm interacting, if it's a mm -hmm. good, uh, you know, a, a lecture or a discussion, it sinks in. Right. Um, and, uh, but like one of those things, like I've got a slight reading disability where it's one of those things of like, I'm not very good at reading documentation, which is funny for a person who has to write a whole lot of documentation. Right. Yeah. I was about to say like, how much documentation do you write? A lot. Not all of it's great. I've been one of those things I've been thinking about is like, well, it's funny because like I also have data and heuristics at Blizzard about like how many people read my documentation, who read it, how many times. And like you sit there and be like, man, I wrote this. I spent like two days on this documentation for this tool. And I have like a, a button in the tool that links to the documentation, opens the Confluence page for it. You can't make it any easier to access. Yeah. And, and I send an email out with the documentation link. And then I walk the floor and, t and I ask people about the tool. Like, hey, there's a new tool. There's documentation. If you have any questions, and I go look and like six out of the 20 people that are using the tool have even opened the page. <laughs> that always kills me. I, I feel for you, Chris. I'm right there with you. You know, we spend a bunch of time trying to scale knowledge. And for those six people, but also when someone's like, hey, I don't know how to do the thing. You're like, did you read the documentation? Did you RTFM? And I'm like, here's the link. But I'm like, but you know, I usually go, I still go over their desk. Here's the thing. I can't be too mad about people not reading the documentation because I have a rough time reading documentation and retaining that information. 
So I can't be too mad about it. So I sit down yeah. with them and talk with them and show them how to do it. So is it worth writing the documentation then? And it's an always evolving strategy. But sure. my most effective strategy has been like, I sort of do what I would refer to as sort of the bare minimum documentation. And then I'll work with a primary consumer of whatever the thing is. And then I encourage the whole team to say, hey, documentation is a living document and everybody can edit it and update it and, and you know, comment on it, edit it, add pictures. Like it's, it's the team's documentation. If we make it documentation, one guy's job, mm -hmm. then it's always going to be out of date. Like, so I, try to, I, try to, I try to develop a culture of documentation more than like, hey, yeah, go edit it. Please go do so, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, update it. Hey, I'd rather I'd rather 10 people go do it and then one person occasionally makes a mistake and then you go talk to them about it, you know? Yeah. And being like, all right, oh man, it's documentation week or whatever, right? And so my strategy is I'm going to document, I think, what sort of the bare minimum is, needs to be. Now that includes pictures and bullet points and the options and anything that's super important. And then when somebody makes a request to make the documentation better, that's a catalyst moment for, all right, I need to go spend some time here. Gotcha. Gotcha. Like I said, it's an evolving strategy. Yeah. See how it works. You know, um, I had a guy, man, my rendering tech artist at Servios, man, that guy was a fucking, Ooh, he was so good at documentation, man. He would, he would get into the, you, did you actually read them? I would say that I did more than skim his work. Okay. That's high praise. But he wrote so much documentation that I was like, I don't like, I, I put, I put aside like 45 minutes to an hour. Like I said, I have a hard time, like just reading documentation. Yeah. You got to vote. You got to cut I'm, out time. I'm making stuff. I need to be referencing it while I'm doing a thing. Okay. Right? So, uh, actually that's why I like documentation videos so much. Hey, you, you watch a few Lumberyard tutorial videos, I, I heard. In the background, while I was having a bourbon, I was playing some games, I had some Lumberyard in the background, and, you know, some of it will trigger, right? Does it actually, like, resonate like that? I don't know 100%, but I think it's one of those things of, like, it's kind of like listening to fucking those daily affirmation things while you sleep. I mean, I don't do that, but it's one of those things of, like, <laughs> I have it going on, and so, like, what will happen is, is I'm very associative in my memory. Mm -hmm. A thing will make me think of a thing will make me think of a thing. And then that'll trigger like 50 chains of memory. Happiness, and at some point while I'm working at a lumber yard, I'm going to remember that John Diaz said, Hey, there's a bunch of menus that aren't all by default that you're going to want to fucking turn on. <laughs> I don't know what those menus are, but I know that that is a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was my takeaway from one of those videos you were doing is, okay. Hey, here's these five or 10 little menus or sub menus that you, that aren't all by default. And I'm going yeah. to go, I'm going to go find that again and watch All it right. and ask a guy, whatever. Right. And yeah, so okay. that's kind of how my brain works is, right. is, I, is, I, is I connect the high level things. And then that leads me down a rabbit hole of learning at a given time when it's important. I okay. kind of learn what I need to learn when I need to learn it. Yes. And I dive deep. And then I remember the high level concepts of the important things. And then my brain flushes the rest. And so that's why I love gotcha. going back and referencing things I've already done. Cause I'm like, man, I did some cool shit here. I don't remember any of this. <laughs> yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Blizzard, right? Like go for it. Go back to finding a place where we can fit in, where we could be our true self and bring our best self to work and be embraced for who we are on top of what we can contribute. I would have thought Blizzard to kind of be 
nirvana. When I graduated from Guildhall, when I graduated from school, literally I told myself, I'm going to work at Blizzard someday. Hey, look, I got my fucking World of Warcraft shirt on right now. Yeah. And I said, someday, I'm not good enough today, but someday I'm going to work at Blizzard. Hell yeah. And I got over there and it's one of those things where I literally had this conversation with my lead over there and I was like, man, I feel like I'm a weirdly shaped puzzle piece that doesn't fit the puzzle over here. Right. And I said, and you guys can't even describe to me what kind of a shape of a puzzle piece you want so I can figure out how to change myself to fit. Right. Like I'm this weird purple amorphous blob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out fit kind of so. in this puzzle spot. Right. And I don't know which corners to smooth out or which blobs to make corners. You guys aren't elaborating that to me. But you're also not embracing the weird purple amorphous blob, right? Mm-hmm. Is that because the Blizzard tools are just kind of like so stuck in their ways and they've been doing things a certain way for so many years? They were in this transition space. And I think there's a lot of companies in this space where like there's sort of what game development was, which is kind of this wacky loony space for weird people to get together to make crazy shit. Yeah. People understood that people were weirdos and like that it was all right to be a weirdo. And then there's this sort of journey from there into this sort of corporate work environment. There's a transition from A to B and Mm -hmm. they don't know where they sit on that line. I think that's part of the problem is there's a lot of these companies that they don't know where they sit on the line. Are we a fun game development place or are we like a corporate law office? Now there's somewhere in between like the days of yore. And there's a lot of things that need to change. A lot of things that need to improve. And there's like, you know, weird old masculine toxic environments that need to die in a fire, but we also don't need to be the corporate law office. Right. But they don't know where they fit on that line. And big companies are bad at nuance. Mm -hmm. And I am a topic that requires nuance. Yeah. Right. I see a dog right there. What type of dog is that? Well, he's some kind of shepherd mix. He's adopted. Look at this guy. He's over here. He's Yeah, he's being a good boy. He's like, what I got to do to get some chicken wings, some bourbon chicken wings? He's going to get, he's a good dog. The lady I adopted him from got him from a puppy mill. And they said he was half shepherd, quarter husky, quarter wolf. But I also like did some research. I'm like 95% of wolf dogs in America, sold in America by, by puppy mills are not wolf dogs whatsoever. Sure. So- he was where I, I asked her, I'm like, Hey, is he good with kids and other dogs? And she's like, he, she, he was raised with my four kids and my older German shepherd. And I was like, well, we'll give it a go. He's actually my ESA dog. He's, I uh, got my, um, where we got, you got paperwork. I got my little, uh, he can come into all the shops and restaurants. I can be a butthole if I want to, but I try to be nice about it. You know, I got a doctor's note and all the stuff. He helps yeah, me. Yeah, my- yeah, National service of animal. And so, you know, part of it was the passing of my daughter and part of it was the stress of Blizzard and some of the other stuff. So was Blizzard kind of the most stressful place you worked at just because of the scale of the games they worked on, the amount of people that played those games? Different kind of stressed, but it was one of those things of like, I got hired and then like two months later, my daughter passed mm-hmm. and I was having up to 10 panic attacks a week at work, man. I was having to like hide behind my monitors, you know what I mean? And like try and not cry at work. Were you not able to take time to like grieve and more? I took some time. I took like three days or whatever, but it was one of those things of like, I didn't even tell them that my daughter was ill even until after I started working there. Cause you know, you go interview at a big company again, Activision had just laid me off a year and a half previous because my Mm -hmm. daughter got sick with cancer. 
And so I was sitting there going like, I'm interviewing with Blizzard. And I'm like, if I, you know, I got to hold my mask on and, you know, there's a whole concept called masking for people who are like autistic and ADHD. You know, I guess I got pretty freaking good at masking <laughs> and I did a bunch of research. So people were like, Hey, you know, I've always loved dogs and I hadn't had a dog since I was four. I'd always wanted a big shepherd. I was sitting there, I was having a tough time and I read this post from this lady who was grieving from the loss of a kid. And she said, I needed a dog. Like I needed a gunshot wound to the head. She's like, I didn't have time or space or energy or anything for a dog, but I got the dog and I got bent. Mm. And my landlord was like, no dogs allowed. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm going through some stuff and I really need a dog. And there's this dog. That's like, okay. But no big dogs. And I was like, <laughs> shit. I was like, well, here's a picture. I saw a picture of the dog with the lady's kid. Like, like being super good. And I was like, yeah. look at him, but he's a rescue dog. And he caved and I was like, all right. Nice. Um, yeah, man. Dogs are lifesavers. I, I like the Pacific Northwest. They tend to embrace dogs everywhere. They're, they're very lenient with them. There's a lot of office spaces all over the West coast that are super dog friendly. You know, as long as your coworkers are cool with it. I went from yeah. five to 10 panic attacks a week to one a year with the dog. Just with the dog. The dog kind of makes you feel chill, gives you a place to be grounded. Not being able to sleep at night, night terrors, the whole nine yards, suddenly started sleeping well at night. Is it just the presence or being able to focus on taking care of the dog? It's, or? it's just the presence, not being alone, having someone there. Like Also, if I'm just having a bad day at work, and when I do have that hard, tough moment at work, my dog comes up to me and puts his head in my lap and pets the dog, and literally just the act of petting a dog releases dopamine. Right. Yes. Yes, it does. Sort of the presence of having him there, walking home late at night, walking to work early in the morning. You're never really alone. You got the dog with you. And so I looked at getting him fully trained as a, as a licensed service animal. Yeah. It was going to be 10 to 12. It was going to be like six to $12,000. Yeah. It's up there. It's valuable though, man. They, they learn fucking everything. And it was one of those things I was like, man, I can already sort of take him most of the places I want to go. I can already take him to work. Yeah, Amazon's is super dog friendly. I wasn't going to get any help from work, from insurance or a monetary perspective or anything. And I was like, well, he can already come to work. All the park rangers, I just have a conversation with them and they're like, okay, you're cool, right? Mm -hmm. I got my card. I got my doctor's note. And I'm like, okay, he's an ESA dog. He's not a full service dog. He's an ESA dog. I call restaurants ahead of time. Like, do you have outdoor seating? Like I'm trying to be a butthole, you know? he's gotten to the point now where I can leave him in the car. He's really fucking upset if I leave him in the car. <laughs> he's never away from me. And now that I work from home remote, like he's never, never away from me. So now yeah, he's, he's extra spoiled. They all are. As long as he's with me, he's chill as hell. If I leave him alone for like 10 minutes, he's like, <laughs> it's an eternity. It's too long. So the dog was able to kind of help you through and, and, and be able to focus at work on Blizzard and cope with your daughter's loss. Yeah. It's even one of those things I was looking at. Servios, go back to the neurodivergent and the disruptive thinkers. I think differently. I do things differently. And one of the things I've been sort of struggling with is like, I think I'm the kind of a leader that a lot of companies need, but I don't think I'm a leader that a lot of companies want. They need you, but they're not looking for you, right? Like the job description that they're trying to fill doesn't encompass like I'm more transparent, I think, than a lot of companies want to have. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, I was very transparent with my group of direct reports at my last company and they all really appreciated that because it's the thing I really appreciate. 
you know, when there's no transparency in the leadership hierarchy, that's the thing that always makes me nervous at a company when I don't know what's going on or why things are going on or, you know, they always try and like, oh, we need to protect people from seeing the, the, the muddy underside. It's like, well, I've never wanted that. I always want to know, I want to know what's going on. I want to know so I can help, so I can be part of the solution, so I can have a realistic view of how the project's going, that kind of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to change. I think there's an active sort of change on the horizon of management. Absolutely, there is. There's a big wave coming, man, where the old guard is going to get washed out. Or There's this old sort of corporate structure of like, we got to keep everything hidden. Like, yeah. one of the things I'd love to see is like salary transparency. As a manager, I'm surprised that you didn't have like full control or at least visibility of what your reports were getting paid. I wasn't told any of that. And that's one of my things like I view as one of my responsibilities as a manager is making sure my employees are paid fairly. I view that as sort of part of my job, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a key part of retention, right? Like whether people admit it or not. I told everybody, I said, my number one priority as a lead is employee retention. My number two priority is hiring because nothing I can do is going to have a bigger impact mm -hmm. than keeping the people we have or hiring the people we need. Nothing I can do is going to have a bigger impact than that. Amen. Amen. But in order to deal with it, if there's information like, I don't know what our salary pay bands are. are You're like fighting a fight with one hand behind your back. Now, some of my employees would tell me what they're paid. And I said, hey, I believe in salary transparency. So if you guys want to know what I'm paid, I will let you know. No problem. Mm. And the couple of my guys were okay having that conversation. Some of them weren't. And that's okay. I'm like, if you don't want to tell me, I don't want to know. If you want to know what I'm paid, I'll let you know. You don't have to tell me in recompense. Because I'm, I'm kind of mixed on that one. I would love a pay transparent world, but sometimes I, I don't think I want it, man. Like I would hate to see somebody doing less work than me, making more money than me for whatever reason. No, is is the only person it hurts is the company that's doing things badly. Mm. Right. So there's two things in that situation. If there's someone that's having less impact than you, that's mm -hmm. making more money than you, there's one of two things going on. You need to get paid more mm -hmm. or is that person being paid appropriately? Are they being paid too much or are you being paid not enough? Now, I would say nine times out of 10, it's you're not being paid enough. Yeah. Right. One time out of 10, somebody's getting paid too much. Mm -hmm. But like, that's pretty damn rare that someone's yeah. getting paid too much. Right. And so the reality of it is, is it's in the company's best interest. And that's why, like, as a manager, I'm a, for the employee manager, I'm a, I'm a managing upwards kind of a manager. I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, well, we're going to pay you more so you can stop talking about pain now, right? I'm like, no, no, no. I want to make sure that my <laughs> employees are being paid money. fairly, right? It was the same thing at Blizzard. Like we were talking about, I was like, well, I was being paid closer, not close, but closer to an engineering salary, right? I was being paid, but I'm like, that doesn't mean that I suddenly stopped being caring about like what QA is being paid, what associate artists are being paid. You know, I, that doesn't mean I don't care about that suddenly. But the thing is, is if you care about what the lowest guy is paying, you're going to be caring about yourself. Because if you bring up their salaries, your salary is going to rise with it, right? With the ri mm -hmm. rising tide lifts all boats or whatever the crap that is. Uh, <laughs> I can, I can dig it. I can see the right? visual. And so it's like, Hey, you know, I don't see how, if you don't, if you raise our lowest paid employees by $40,000, which is about what needed to happen at Blizzard. Cause you got people being paid $40,000, which is near poverty line Jeez. in an, in an, in an economy, in a, in a local economy that says $90,000 is under $90,000 report. 
if you pay the lowest employee $90,000, I don't see how that doesn't translate to a raise for me. Mm. Right. I, in, in no world does that mean like, all right, now there's going to be suddenly only a $24,000 difference between a senior technical artist and an associate QA person. Like, how's that going to work? Yeah. No. Okay. It's going it, it's to bubble up. I can see why the employer wouldn't want pay transparency now, right? Like it's going to cost them a lot of money to retain good talent, but I can see how it's a win for the employee. Yeah. It's also a win for the employer because the thing is, is they can still make a shit ton of money paying me what I'm worth. And they make even more money because you know what? Because the pay doesn't come into the equation of why I would leave. Like I could not afford to stay at Blizzard. That's why you left. I left because I literally... I sat down and looked at my finances. I'm like, I got a kid who's going to need to go to college in 10 years. I haven't had a vehicle in nine or 10 years. I didn't want anything crazy. I'm like, I want to have a house. I want to send my kid to school and I want a truck. I'm not like, I want fucking nine yachts on the fucking dock. I want a house and a vehicle and an education for my kid. And I sat down and looked at him like, literally the math doesn't work out. And I went to them. I said, Hey, the math doesn't work out. Here's the minimum amount I need to make the math work out. Here's what I would prefer to have. And they didn't budge whatsoever. And I said, I'm going to, you know, I said, Hey, I'm not going to be here in a year. If things don't change, I need remote work or I need higher pay or I need a less stressful job, preferably all three. <laughs> and, and I got nothing and I left after a year. Do you think that they can change? Do you think they are going to change now that they're under the Microsoft umbrella? Is there anything you wish you could have done? I talked with them recently and I, it, it sounds like there is change happening, right? And the thing is the pays that are happening are somewhat close to like, I did the math of like sort of how much I was worth at the minimum. And that was probably around $250,000. In that economy, in that cost of living. Well, and also just like value I brought the company. I did some rough calculations and I saved Blizzard somewhere between 25 and a hundred million dollars while I was there. You got to show me how you did that math after we're done recording. I want to see if I can make the same argument. Now I got lucky that I was there for like the entire transition of the art pipeline. And I put a lot of the pieces into place for the art pipeline transition to definitely didn't do it alone, but I sat down and was like, Hey, on a given day, here's how much money I saved the company. I'm like, I wrote a script this day that saved us $200,000 in like one day. Right. And it's like, you know, if we were to stop everything and have the artists do this instead, it would have cost us this much time based on sort of an average artist salary. Assuming five minutes per job, assuming that they had zero human error in the process. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right? Like, happens. okay. So that was, you know, conservatively a hundred thousand, but more realistically, it'd take them 15 minutes to do it. There'd be human error. So probably more than 200,000, but let's split the difference and say it's about $200,000 for a day. Dude. Right. This sort of gets to this interesting thing as I was sitting there thinking about fair pay and compensation while I was elite. And I realized there's no good way to do it. That's what I'm saying. And so, cause I sit down and look at, okay, now I'm in a unique situation where I'm literally a pipeline optimization person. Like yeah. I need to sit down and really figure out what the best bang for the buck of my time spent at the company is. So I can figure out what I'm saving. How do you figure out the value add of a person? So one of the things I did at Blizzard was I helped transition us into a, a having a lot more physics in the, in the wow pipeline. Okay. So before we had like a, a camera facing billboard tassels on weapons, right? How much extra value does an actual physics dangling tassel add versus a billboard tassel? How much value does that add to the product? I mean, I don't know. How do you calculate? How do you quantify that? How do you quantify it? Right. Is it better? Yes. How much money is it worth? 
no clue, man. I got no mm-hmm. clue. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think it's just straight up higher quality, but how does that quality transition into a bottom line? And then there's also like, one of the things that I do is I bring a high morale boost to a team. I bring a lot of energy. I bring a lot of energy to the conversation. Your energy guy. I bring the energy of a, of a meeting up, right? People can come in and be like, oh, and I'm like, hey guys. And yeah, lack of a better word, like I bring that energy level up. How much is that worth to the company, right? How much is higher quality content worth the company? Those things are very hard to define. You have people that are only value add people. How do you quantify their value? Like I can quantify my value savings, but I also could not quantify my value add, right? And so, hey, I knew from value savings propositions, I'm, I'm worth around $250,000 at Blizzard on the minimum. Yeah. Right. And that's, I'm, I'm sort of basing that off of, I'm, I'm outsourcing some of that value proposition. Google says that a valuable employee brings in 10 times more money than you pay. And so if you just look at, you know, I was kind of doing some math and looking at like the average wow employee and how much sort of money that they bring into the company. I'm like, well, average wow employee brings in around two to $10 million a year for a wow developer. So, okay, let's say that they pay me. 250,000 to a million dollars a year. I'm still a highly valuable employee at a 10X value proposition. Yeah. Right. And I look at, okay, well, there's some days I save the company hundreds of thousands of dollars on a day. So I'm bring, I'm not an average wow employee. Right. And so, okay, let's say that I make that, I save the company that per day sometimes. Right. So I feel it's pretty safe to say I'm worth about 250,000. Right. And at that dollar amount, I'm a steal for the company, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm being paid less than half that. It's a tough one, right? Because a lot of the value in the best cases, they can quantify it. They can measure it on a spreadsheet. They could be like, Hey, Chris's work saving us this, this is his value add or his value save. But then, like you said, there's a lot of intangibles and subjective things for being like an energy guy, a team morale booster, making the workplace a better place to be at. And that's rough to try to standardize that. And you know, I would argue that every single teammate of mine and yours should be measured differently, right? At the very minimum, having pay bands. That brings me to the interesting question of, okay, let's say I'm a senior tech artist and I'm mm. saving the company millions of dollars a year. Yeah. Another senior tech artist who's saving the company 10 times less than that. We'll just make a, yeah. an example. Is it fair to pay us the same? Don't know. I mean, so if you're paying us based on our value add, no. If you're paying us based on our title, I guess, yes. Title and experience. Right. And then, so there's like this whole thing of like, again, you can sort of calculate some of my worth based on value savings. How do you calculate value add? How do you calculate that into my salary? What I bring to the company? And that was sort of, I was sitting there trying to, I sort of was going through sort of the logical steps of like, how would I evaluate an employee's worth versus how much they're making the money? And it's one of those things like, there's not a good answer. There's a couple different ways to do it. It's like, if you could calculate somebody's value. That would be a fair way to do it. So you talk about salary transparency. It's like, okay, let's say they're going to pay me 250000 a year and they're going to pay another senior tech artist $125,000 a year. Uh-huh. That person. Now, there's kind of two kinds of salary transparency. One is the pay structure of the company. And the other is literally individual salary contributions, right? So you don't necessarily have to know how much I made to know that a senior tech artist is making this to that. Yeah, like uh, I think Amazon has that too. Amazon has their levels. 
and based on what level you fall in and whether you're IC or manager, yeah, you know, that square or box has its compensation rate. I think you start with the salary band transparency for every position in the company mm. that people can go, oh, well, I'm not even being paid in my salary band. Yes. Right. That's where it starts at the bare minimum or I'm at the bottom of my salary band. Yeah, and then you can have conversations with your manager, right? To be like, hey, what can I do to be exactly a better teammate, a better contributor, a better employee? I always I was like, what do I need to do to be worth more money at the company? Mm-hmm. Right. And I had that conversation in Midway. It went pretty well. I was like, all right, we'll give you a mid-level promotion. You got to figure out facial animation for us. You got to go figure out face effects, how it works, how we're going to implement Damn. it. Damn. Face effects was just coming into the industry too at that time. I sat down and I worked with like some designers on getting face effects implemented and figuring out how it works. I made animations for it, made the fucking blend shaped trees and shit for it and all that other stuff. and got it implemented into the dialogue system back in, what was it? Kismet back in the day. Yeah. Kismet. And I got it all worked up and I went, I was getting ready to go in and be like, Hey, I did it. And they're like, all right. And I also went in and was like, Hey, I got another, I got an offer from a company in New York, Vicarious Visions. And I'm like, I want to work here though. What do I need to do to get promotion? And they're like, you got to do this. And that was with John Summers, I think. John Summers. Yeah. And so I came back and I'm like, I did it. And they're like, all right, we're going to have our conversation next week. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get your promotion. And that was the week, man. <laughs> that <laughs> the criminal cancellation. The that they shut down the company or the, they let go of everybody except the people on Paladin. Yeah. Um, ironically, did you know, I, I ended up. Did you come back to work on Paladin? So no, actually what happened was when we finished Black Sight, they're like, everybody started moving over to criminal. Yeah. Well, again, no one was really managing me. Uh-huh. So you were helping Paladin. Man, this game looks like my jam. Oh, yeah. Like, that game is okay. Fantasy. I was so green. I was like, I guess you just pick what game you're going to work on next. <laughs> Nobody tells you. Oh, so I just yeah, went over. Just I, was, I was working with uh, Tim Wallace on Paladin. And I was, like, it was me and him for the art pretty much. And I learned so much just goofing around like, I'm going to make a swamp level and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, I ain't good. I would do some Z brushing and make some stuff, work some material blending stuff. And, and then eventually they realized it took them like two or three months to realize I was on the wrong games. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I need a criminal to do tech art stuff and environmental tech art work and disrupt. Two or three months had gone by. And, and I was just like, I was over there. I'm like, I'm making a fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> before Blizzard. Yeah. This is before your time at Blizzard. Going back to where it all began, and here you are on to the next chapter coming up in the Pacific Northwest. Amazon is a pretty amazing place. I know that Amazon Game Studios had its share of struggles when I was there, but I think they're changing things around. Hopefully, they start listening to the talent they hire. Curious to see how your time will be. Now that they actually shipped New World, right? I think that was the biggest thing holding them back was actually getting a product out there. That's the team I'm going to be on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear you taking your expertise in live MMOs into New World and, and making that pipeline all that it can be. And we definitely got to talk about that more in the future, my friend. Mm-hmm. So I got a couple of closing questions for you. Shoot. Where can people connect with you, reach out, see your work? I'm on LinkedIn. I uh, engage with people pretty well over there. And on Instagram, it's like Dirty Techsmith on Instagram. I'll link your Instagram and LinkedIn on on the show notes. Yeah, I'm the Dirty Techsmith uh, on on Instagram. 
that's mostly like woodworking, blacksmithing, leatherwork. That's my crafty stuff. I'm sort of starting up. I'm kind of working long term on like a like a like a CNC woodworking business idea. So that's going to be where I'm going to start sort of that. But LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Yeah, we'll share that. That's a good way for people to get a hold of you us. Shoot me that, if, if, if people shoot me that invite, then just say like, hey, uh, sometimes I give people like some advice or just chat or whatever. Just put a message in the in the in the invite in the ad is, you know, that's just a pro tip. If you're going to add somebody you don't know on LinkedIn, do it on the PC because you can add a little note when you go hit that ad button. You can't do it on the mobile. If you do it on mobile, oh. you, can't, you can't add the message. But you can get one like two hundred and fifty word message or whatever, and so pro, pro tip, all the people out there link doing LinkedIn. If you're going to add somebody from the industry, you're just somebody cool. Just put a little blurb in there and be like, "Hey, I heard about you over here," or "Hey, I really like your work" or whatever. Just my little, that's my little pro tip on LinkedIn. Nice, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one that I think a lot of people forget about. And finally, my friend. I want to know who do you nominate to fall out of the play area behind you? Well, if I just go with the first thing that leaps into my brain, Matt Green. Matt Green. Woo! I just want to hear from that guy. He's like a, he became a ghost after uh, he yeah, man. or anything, man. I think he, last I heard, he was either at Sony Santa Monica working on some sweet God of War systems or at Volition on some Saints Roll systems or something like that. I need to track him down. Can you help me track him down? I mean, Rusty might be a good way Rusty. to track him down because I think both him and Rusty were working at Volition, right? Yeah. Have you already had Rusty on here? Rusty's coming, man. Me and him stay in touch. And we did a GDC panel together, man. That was like a bucket list item. Oh, nice. I will definitely be bringing him on in the GDC presentations on my bucket list too, man. Yo, you have a lot to talk about, my friend. I, I was I was just about to end with this because I usually start with this and I forgot to ask you, right? Like I can make up a job description for a technical artist that's like super generic, right? But I like to give the person doing the job the opportunity to lay out for people who may not fully comprehend or understand what you do as a pipeline technical artist or what, what are you coming in to do at, at AGS? I'm like sort of a, a, a unicorn within the, the world of tech art, which is a, a unicorn uh, ecosystem sort of, but I'm a pipeline tech artist. I would say that tech artists in general are problem solvers, creative problem solvers. Creative and problem solvers. Outside of that, they all have their own, they're people that empower you to do things you weren't able to do before or figure out things that no one else can figure out in a lot of ways. Myself, I grease the wheels of game development, so to speak. Hmm. I'm a little bit tools engineer. I'm a little bit automation engineer. I'm a little bit tech artist. I'm a little bit mad scientist. My sort of unique special power within the tech art world is looking at very complicated interwoven systems and making sense of it and figuring out ways to take advantage of the overlapping madness, so to speak. Are there any resources that you know about or frequent for this realm? I mean, lots of forum stuff. For me, it's always the, the, the things that I'm solving are always sort of bespoke issues that a team has because okay. it's always like, how is this team set up? They've already got to establish stuff. Are, are they making something new? What are they trying to achieve? What are the pillars of their game? Mm -hmm. What are their short-term, medium-term, long-term problems of how do we want to address all of those? Right. Coming up with a strategy that maps across your short-term, medium-term, and long-term objectives mm -hmm. from a game and a studio perspective. 
that's sort of where my brain goes. Saving lots of money, removing <laughs> tedium and morale-destroying bullshit from people's everyday lives. Who doesn't like that? People talk to me about, like, what is a good tool? And a good tool not only increases your efficiency, but it's also morale boost, right? Mm -hmm. You get rid of the stuff people don't want to do. You get rid of the tedious things. People go, oh, shit. Like, when you get, when you get that task, it's like, hey, John, can you go resave these 500 fucking things with this one checkbox checked on it? You're like, yeah, I can. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. I'll write you a fucking script to do that. Yes. Right. Morale boost right there. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yo, Chris, man, this has been a blast, man. It's been a good time, John. I'll raise, I'll, raise my, I'll raise my glass here and we'll go digital clean. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Do you have any last words for the audience out there? Be nice. Be creative. Have a good time. How was that very organic, free-flowing, loosely edited conversation for everyone? When Chris approached me to do the interview, he was motivated to bring awareness to disruptive thinkers, and we touched on it lightly. What stuck out to me was the importance of salary and benefits for the cost of living of where you are based relative to your experience and the value you're adding. I saw that that tends to be a major reason of contention and dissatisfaction, leaving an otherwise great job on a great team on a great product. And it was very interesting takeaways of pay transparency. I think there's pros and cons, but I'd like to see it implemented and see what happens there. I know what the pay bands are for my role and level at Epic Games and am happy with where I fall given what I bring and my seniority with a positive outlook for room to grow comfortably without having to feel like I've got to push to get promoted or die to see a significant raise. Do you know your pay bands and those of your direct reports? Would you go to bat for your team if you found out that they were getting underpaid compared to others on the team doing similar work? Secondly, while Chris is the second person to openly discuss his neurodivergence after Marie Measure Wall back in episode 26, we dove deep understanding how it can greatly serve him or require more effort of him. I purposefully kept the time travel editing to near zero and kept the timeline of the conversation intact. Curious, how was that to follow? Do you have friends, relatives, acquaintances that jump around from topic to topic, but are or are not able to bring it back? When I'm at work, I've gotten much better about flowing with people to get to the thing we're trying to solve. But I'll admit in my youth earlier in my career, I was much less patient and even in college and school and always nudging to keep a teammate moving forward along a track that made sense to me with disregard for them and the way they optimally work. I honestly believe that the more I talk to people on the show and coworkers and colleagues in this industry and learn more about these classifications, the more I'm seeing people self-diagnose themselves and it helps to recognize their superpowers and how to bring it out in them and create that optimal working space. I wonder how it feels working from home versus being in the hustle and bustle in the office. I'll admit that I tend to get more distracted at home with the demands around me, especially now with a baby boy, and thinking that I could be more productive in the office. But then on second hand, I think that it would balance out with my around-the-clock availability and the commute time savings. We didn't geek out about pipeline tech art like I would have hoped, because I don't know many of them, but that just means there's room for another one of you to come on the show and talk about your craft. I honestly believe for myself in a different life, I would have gone into tech art. I think tech design and tech art is a cut from the same cloth with distant cousins and 
you know, we just venture into different areas of specialty by luck. On episode 38 of the Game Devs podcast, we'll sit down with Claude Jerome, a lead gameplay designer at Firewalk, a subsidiary studio underneath Probably Monsters based out of Bellevue, Washington. You have to listen to that episode to understand their interesting dynamic. He's done systems design for Bungie on Destiny and is a fellow tech designer by nature who's worked at Project Spark at Microsoft Game Studios, worked for Recarious Visions on Handheld, and also a fellow Game Devs of Color Expo speaker. We'll discuss his journey in Game Dev, all the different hats and jobs that he's worn, how he approaches leadership, and how the heck probably Monsters operates. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Fight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Huh? Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. We got a play. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales. A new podcast comes to provide the balance. With game dev veterans and rising talents. Out of play. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast. A show by game devs for game devs. With no ads, no BS, just the real.